time. Now, when I was growing up, my dad loved to take our family on summer vacations. And probably as a kid, my favorite summer vacation we went on was our road trip to Walt Disney World. Yeah, we hit the open road from Southern California and drove all the way across the country to Walt Disney World. And I got to experience the Epcot Center and some of that stuff. And I, as a seven-year-old kid, had a great time at Disney World. But I got to tell you that some of the stops we made along the way were just as fun for me. One of my favorite stops along the way as we were driving across the country was our stop in southern New Mexico at the National Park Carlsbad Caverns. How many of you have ever been to Carlsbad Caverns? A few of you? You go inside these huge caverns, and they connect with the next cavern, and they seem to go on forever and ever and ever. And you're going through these caverns, and it's amazing to see these beautiful stalactites coming from the ceiling. That you know these stalactites were formed by individual drops of mineral water coming through the limestone. And over the course of hundreds of years, they eventually form a stalactite. And then you look at the ground coming up from the ground are the stalagmites that once again mineral water over the course of hundreds of years form these stalagmites. And sometimes so much time passes the stalagmites and stalactites connect in the middle. It's just amazing as a kid going through this and they get all the colored lights going in these caverns. So it really accentuates how beautiful it is. One of my favorite parts as a seven-year-old kid was what we did at nighttime. We went outside the caverns and sat on some bleachers facing the cavern entrance right before sunset. And if you've been there before, you remember what happens at sunset. Thousands of bats fly out of the mouth of the cavern over your heads going to look for their nighttime meal. And so as a kid sitting there with thousands of bats flying by, you might think that would freak me out. But I actually thought it was kind of cool. It didn't freak me out. But there was one thing that day that did freak me out. As we were going through the tour of the caverns, at one point, the tour guide says, I'm going to turn off all the lights. And so we get in the caverns, and it's like three, two, one, go. The switch is flipped, and it's pitch dark in there. I couldn't see my hand in front of my face. And that freaked me out a little bit. It only lasted a few seconds, but it felt like a lot longer, right? Because there's something about light that really brings us peace and security. After a few seconds, he flipped the light back on, and I could just feel my heart kind of leap inside my chest. Well, as we were looking at John chapter 8 last week, we saw that Jesus is the light of the world. Amen? We see that if, as we go back to the very beginning of creation in Genesis chapter 1, notice what God created on the very first day of creation in Genesis 1. Remember God said, let there be light. On the very first day of creation, God created physical light to penetrate the physical darkness. And in John 8, Jesus reveals that he is the spiritual light that penetrates the spiritual darkness. That makes sense, doesn't it? And in John 8, 12, Jesus declares, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So last Sunday, we saw that in John 8, uh, Jesus is there in the temple courts. The Feast of Tabernacles has drawn to a close. And as he's there ministering, uh, Jesus' critics are starting to get pretty perturbed with him. Jesus Christ says a few things to those religious leaders that for some reason they didn't like. For some reason, they didn't like it when Jesus said that they're slaves to their own sin. For some reason, they didn't like it when Jesus said that their father was Satan. Can you imagine they didn't like that? And so they're getting pretty perturbed. And the straw that breaks the camel's back is at the very end of the chapter where Jesus, in no uncertain terms, claims to be God himself. 
At the end of the chapter, verse 58 of John 8, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was born, I am. He uses that term, I am, the holiest name of God from the Old Testament. So knowing that Jesus had just called himself by the holiest name of God, the Jewish leaders pick up stones to stone him to death. But Jesus, at the end of the chapter, slips through the crowd and leaves the temple grounds. And that's where we pick up this morning in verse 1 of John chapter 9. Please say amen if you're there. John chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. As he went along, Jesus saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? We'll go ahead and stop there for now. Here in John 9, Jesus is in Jerusalem with his disciples. Somewhere outside the temple complex, they pass by a blind man. Now, if you were to skip down to verse 8, you'd find a few more details out about this blind man. We learn in verse 8 that he was a beggar. So evidently, he sat beside one of the main roads there in Jerusalem, probably the road leading to the temple. That's where he would see the most traffic, or not literally see, but be able to experience the most traffic coming by and would probably do best as a beggar. And so he's a beggar there at the side of the road, and as he's doing his thing, Jesus and his disciples come by. This man evidently did this day after day. In those days, they didn't have any ADA-accessible jobs. So if if you were crippled or if you were blind, sorry, there was no job you could hold back then. And if your family needed you to somehow bring home some money to chip in for the family income, the only thing a, a person could do in those days, if you couldn't work, if you were crippled or blind, the only thing you could do is panhandle. That was the only option. You'd sit on the side of the road and hope that people would give you some money that you could take home to help pay the bills. It's the only option wasn't really a job, but it was the only way someone like a blind man could bring home some money. There's a good chance that Jesus and his disciples had walked by this man several times during their visits to Jerusalem. There's a really good chance that all the locals knew this guy because we read in these early verses that he was blind from birth. And so he'd done this probably year after year after year. Probably everyone in Jerusalem knew this guy. They'd passed him many times at some point or another. Probably Jesus' disciples had passed him before, but this day, this day here in John 9 is different. On this day, the disciples get up the boldness to ask Jesus a question, evidently a question that had been gnawing at them. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, why on earth would they ask such an odd question? Who sinned that he was born blind? Well, the Jewish rabbis in their day had a very narrow and simplistic view of pain and suffering. So the reason Jesus' disciples asked this question in verse 2 is because they didn't know any better. They had been taught by the rabbis before Jesus came on the scene. They had been taught by the rabbis a very simple, a very simplistic, a very narrow view of how pain and suffering comes about. It kind of boils down to this. They believed that all sickness, disease, deformity, and even natural disasters were God's punishment for people's personal sin. No tragedy was accidental. All of it was inflicted by God on lawbreakers, simple cause and effect. That's what the Jewish leaders taught. That's what most people in Israel believed. So if a man was crippled, 
it was assumed that God had crippled him because of his sin. Isn't that sweet? If a woman contracted leprosy, people believed that leprosy was a God-given punishment for her sin. When people had heart issues or weak lungs or kidney failure or diabetes or whatever it might be, the Jewish rabbis were convinced that God was smiting them for their sin. In their view, every sickness, every disease, all deformity, all natural disasters, even so-called accidents were all direct punishments because of personal sin. Now, was this view unbiblical? And the answer is, no, it wasn't. It actually wasn't unbiblical. You can look through the pages of the Old Testament and even in the New Testament, and you'll find cases where God, because of a man's sin, struck him with leprosy. Anyone come to mind? Elijah's servant. Remember? God strikes him with leprosy because of his sin. You find cases of God causing the earth to swallow up people. He brings a natural disaster that destroys them on the spot. We find examples with the ten plagues of Egypt where God causes natural disasters. God brings about sickness. He brings about plague. He brings about disease. He brings about death on the spot for people who sin against him. So it's not a, yeah, poisonous snakes is one other example. So you look at the pages of the scripture, even in the New Testament. Remember Ananias and Sapphira. They sin against God. Bam, they drop dead. Why did they drop dead? It was a direct result of their personal sin, wasn't it? So this view of the disciples isn't unbiblical, but it is very narrow and very simplistic. It doesn't account for all that Scripture teaches, does it? You see, the Scripture teaches that it's not just a direct result of sin when stuff happens. The Bible teaches, and Jesus in particular teaches this during his ministry, that sometimes things just happen in this life that aren't pleasant Because we live in a broken world. It's not the direct result of sin that you suffer. Sometimes it is, but not always. And so when it came down to it, the the disciples and the Jewish leaders, they didn't understand all this. They didn't understand all this. Their view was so narrow and simplistic, they thought all of it was a direct result of personal sin. And so when it came down to it, Jesus' apostles had learned So much of what Jesus still had to teach them. So why did they ask this question in verse 2? Because their theology was faulty. In their mind, there were only two possibilities. If all disease, if all illness, if all death is the direct result of personal sin, then there could be only two options for this man. He's either blind because of his own sin or because of his parents' sin. Those are the only two options in their mind. So, Jesus, which is it? Was it his sin or was it his parents' sin? Now, you might have noticed a a slight little flaw in their logic because it says he was born blind. He was born blind. So are you saying, disciples, that this man is possibly being punished for sin that he committed in utero? Sin that he committed as a fetus. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, it is. In Jesus' day, the rabbis taught that you could, in fact, sin before you were born. They said there were two possibilities. Possibility number one, a fetus could sin. I don't know what heinous sin 
an unborn child floating in his mother's amniotic fluid could commit that would get God so angry that he would say, I'm going to make you blind from birth. I don't know what that heinous sin might be, but they believed it was possible. And then other rabbis taught that you could even sin before you were in your mother's womb. You see, many Jews in those days had this hodgepodge theology that was a mixture of biblical theology and Greek mysticism and Greek fantasies. And so they would thrust these together, and some of these Jewish rabbis would teach that our souls existed before we were inside our mother's womb. They say that our souls existed. Some rabbis uh, surmise that our souls existed as far back as the Garden of Eden. And all of our souls were in some sort of holding tank, just waiting for God to create a body to place our souls in. And so they propose that it's possible for your pre-existing soul to sin before you're ever even in your mother's womb. Is that biblical theology? No, it's not. It's a hodgepodge mixture of Greek mysticism and biblical teaching. And so they had these wacky views of what could happen before you were born. And so when it comes down to it, we today have similar issues because so many Christians today say, yes, I believe in the Bible. Yes, I have a biblical theology. Yes, I believe what the Bible teaches. But when it comes down to it and you probe them a bit, their teaching, their preaching, their messages, their beliefs are all kind of a hodgepodge mixture of humanism and biblical teaching. You don't have to hunt very far to find some of the best-known TV preachers today that millions of people across the nation watch and listen to, and you listen to a few of those messages, and you can quickly realize that that's not sound biblical teaching. It's got some biblical teaching in the mix, but it's mixed with humanism. And it's mixed, in some cases, with some New Age thought. It's a very man-centered theology oftentimes, not a God-centered theology. Now, Don't mistake me, there are some wonderful TV preachers out there that teach the Word of God faithfully. But be careful. Many of them have this hodgepodge mixtures theology that is not grounded in the Word of God. Warren Wiersbe writes, The disciples did not look at the man as an object of mercy, but rather as a subject for a theological discussion. It's much easier to discuss an abstract subject like sin than it is to minister to a concrete need in the life of a person. That's an excellent point. It's very sad to realize how shallow and simplistic the disciples' theology was, their theology of pain and suffering. Pretty sad, isn't it? But even sadder is the fact that here in front of them was a man who desperately needed a touch from God. And they don't seem to have any compassion. They don't seem to have any mercy He's just a subject for a theological conversation. That's pretty sad, isn't it? I like also how Chuck Swindoll puts it. He makes another great point. He says, the disciples saw the man's affliction as the just penalty of someone's sin, either his own or that of his parents. It's human nature to find someone to blame. Isn't that true? It's human nature to find someone to blame. These disciples were so focused on who are we to blame? For this man being blind on the side of the road. Whose fault is it? Not even a thought it seems in their minds. That they might be able to do something to help the man. They're just curious about how he got that way. And whose fault it was. Well in verse 2 the disciples do ask Jesus this very misguided question. But it presents Jesus with a wonderful opportunity. 
to cleanse their brains with the living water of the word. Before moving on to verse 3, let me just say this very quickly. One of the reasons it is so important for you to read your word every day and to make sure you're in church and receiving solid teaching from the word of God and as much as possible during the week, listen to other good preaching and good teaching and good sermons. And whenever possible, being a part of a Bible study group. One of the reasons those things are so important is because our brains are filled with lots of junk, aren't they? From the TV shows we've watched, from the music we've listened to, from the F-bombs dropped constantly by those around us, the conversations we overhear. All of this stuff is stuck in these craniums of ours. And the thoughts of the world need to be flushed out with the pure truth of the living water of God's word. Amen? And so it's critical that we wash our brains with the word of God. Don't just soak it in once or twice a month. Don't just open your Bibles once in a while. Make sure you're in the living water every day because God has a lot of flushing to do. We have a hodgepodge mixture theology more than we might realize because we have been desensitized so much that we have heard and experienced in this world. Well, let's look at Jesus's view as he responds to the disciples question beginning in verse three. So picking up here in verse three of John chapter nine, we read. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said this, he spit on the ground. We'll get to that in a minute. Jesus responds to their question here. Think about it for a moment. The disciples and Jesus were looking at the exact same man. They're looking at the exact same blind man on the side of the road. But their perspectives were 180 degrees apart, weren't they? The disciples saw a man who was smitten by God. Jesus saw a man who was ready to be saved by God. The disciples saw a man who was to be blamed for his condition. But Jesus saw a man who could be delivered from his condition. The disciples saw a man whose best days were behind him. Jesus saw a man whose best days were yet to come. Completely different perspectives on the exact same man. I really like how the message paraphrases verse 3. So a paraphrase is not an attempt to translate the words accurately. A paraphrase tries to come up with some sort of dynamic equivalent to explain the general idea of a verse. And so this is how the message paraphrases verse 3. Jesus said, you're asking the wrong question. You're looking for someone to blame. There is no such cause effect here. Look instead for what God can do. Now, one of the reasons I like this paraphrase is because it tackles a couple of the common questions that we have when we read a translation of verse 3. There are a couple questions that Christians have asked consistently over the centuries when reading verse 3. The first question goes like this. Is Jesus saying that the blind man and his parents have never sinned? Because they ask him that question in verse 2, who sinned, this man or his parents that he was born blind? And Jesus says what in verse 3? Neither him nor his parents sinned. And so Christians ask this question, is Jesus saying these three people never sinned? And the answer is no, he's not. Those two parents of this blind man had sinned and they had sinned a lot. The word of God is very clear in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Amen. 
All have sinned. Was this blind man a sinner? Absolutely. He had sinned many times. All three of them, him, his mom, his dad, all three had sinned many times. Jesus' point is the man is not blind because of those three individuals' sin. Right? His point is not that they had never sinned. His point is their sin did not lead to his blindness. There's a second question that Christians ask after reading verse 3. Is Jesus saying that God caused this man to be blind so that down the road Jesus could heal him? It kind of sounds that way in the NIV or in the King James or in the ESV, doesn't it? This man is not blind because of his or his parents' sin, but this happens so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. Kind of sounds like Jesus is saying God caused him to be blind so that later on down the road Jesus could heal him. God the Father was setting up Jesus for a miracle. Wasn't that nice of God the Father? No, that wouldn't be nice, would it? That would be cruel and unusual punishment for this blind man. For God to make him be, who knows how many years, blind, so that Jesus down the road could be the hero and heal him, that would be unjust, that would be cruel, and our God is not unjust or cruel. So the answer to that second question, is Jesus saying that God caused this man to be born blind so that down the road Jesus could heal him? The answer is once again, no. No. God's not cruel. He's not unjust. He didn't prevent it from happening, but he didn't cause it either. Sometimes things just happen. Jesus reveals that his blindness presents a golden opportunity for God's good work to be displayed in his life. Look at verses 4 and 5 again. Jesus makes it clear that as long as there is breath in his lungs, it is his job to be the light of the world. It's his job and it's his followers job to be light in the darkness. And this blind beggar presents the perfect opportunity for Jesus and his disciples to light up someone's dark world. Amen. Did God cause him to be blind? No, he didn't. But Jesus Christ had an opportunity to shine light into the darkness that this man was experiencing. Well, let's pick up in verse 6 where it gets really good. Picking up in verse 6 of John chapter 9. Having said this, Jesus spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means scent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the, the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, nah, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I'm the man. How then were your eyes open, they demanded. He replied, the man they call Jesus made some mud. He put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Salome and wash. So I went and washed and then I could see. Well, where is this man? They asked him. I don't know, he said. Oh, what a great passage. Remember that there are seven sign miracles recorded in the Gospel of John. This is the sixth of those. And we've talked about this in, in prior weeks. When you see a sign miracle in the book of John, you ask the question, what does the sign point to? Because a sign miracle is recorded in this book to reveal something about who Jesus is and what he came to earth to do. So what is this sign miracle, opening the eyes of the man born blind, what does it reveal about Jesus? Well, this specific sign miracle confirms the truth that Jesus is the light of the world. Amen? The best way for Jesus to demonstrate that he is the spiritual light of the world was by giving sight to a man who had spent his entire life in physical 
darkness. As we study the four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you can count up more than 30 separate miracles that Jesus performed. So he did all sorts of things in these 30-plus miracles. He allowed mutes to speak. He opened deaf ears. He healed lepers of their leprosy. He healed a woman with an issue of blood at one point. He healed another of dropsy. He even raised a couple from the dead. But what is the most common type of healing that Jesus performs in the Gospels? Do you know? He heals a man or a woman from blindness. Isn't that interesting? It's the most common repeated miracle of Jesus in the Gospels. Why is that? And there is a reason, of course, as you might guess, Jesus didn't do things by accident. If you go back to the prophet Isaiah, you'll find several places in Isaiah where it's prophesied that the coming Messiah will show himself to be the Messiah by opening the eyes of the blind. A few quick examples. Isaiah 29, verse 18 says this, The coming Messiah in that day, the deaf will hear the words of the scroll, and out of gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind will see. You go down a little bit further in Isaiah, and you find in Isaiah 35, Then will the eyes of the blind be open, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer, and the mute tongue shout for joy. And then you go and look at one more in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 7. Speaking of the Messiah, He will open the eyes of the blind, free the captives from prison, and to release from dungeon those who sit in darkness. So you see this over and over again in the prophet Isaiah. The coming Messiah will open the eyes of the blind. That's one of the indications and proofs that he is exactly who he claims to be. So Jesus' miracle here in John 9, it really serves a few purposes. For starters, it's an act of much-needed compassion shown to a man who desperately needed a miracle. But not only that, it proves that Jesus is both the light of the world and the promised Messiah. Amen? Now let's talk about what Jesus does before healing the man, because honestly, it's a little weird, and it's a little gross. Look again at verse 6. Jesus spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Now, I've never been blind, but from what I've heard, when someone is blind, their other senses are heightened, especially their sense of hearing. So imagine being this blind man. I imagine as the disciples are walking by with Jesus, they're talking quietly, hoping that the blind man won't overhear what they're saying. Hey, who is, who is born blind? This man or his parents? Or, or who is sin? This man or his parents that he was born blind? But the guy had a heightened sense of hearing. He probably heard everything the disciples were saying. And then Jesus, beginning in verse 3, as Jesus answers their question, he hears what Jesus says. Neither this man nor his parents sinned. But he was born blind so that God's will, God's work could be displayed in his life. I am the light of the world. And so the blind man is in all likelihood hearing all of this. And Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And the next thing the blind man hears is... I don't know about you, but for me that would be a little disturbing. He's just said... That God's work is going to be displayed in my life somehow. He's just claimed to be the light of the world. I've overheard some of the rumors about Jesus being this miracle man. What's up with a... Now, back in those days, that wouldn't have been quite as gross as it is for you and me. If someone spits, and then all of a sudden you feel something wet and moist and weird on your eyeballs, 
uh, you would probably head for the hills, wouldn't you? That's pretty gross because in our culture, saliva is looked at as unsanitary, gross. One of the most insulting things you could ever do to someone in America is spit in their eyes, right? It's one of the most insulting things you could do in Western culture. But in those days, not so much. Do you know for most of human history, saliva has been valued for its medicinal purposes? It's true. Dogs aren't stupid after all for licking their wounds. Studies in recent years have actually shown that saliva has some antiseptic and healing properties. Have you ever noticed that sores inside your mouth heal faster than on any other part of your body? Saliva is one of the reasons for that. Have you ever noticed that when you get a boo-boo on your finger, one of your first reactions without even thinking about it, to stick it in your mouth and suck on the boo-boo? Ever noticed that mom, when the little toddler comes in with mud on his cheek or a little scrape, licks her thumb? Starts rubbing his cheek. Why is she slapping spit all over the poor kid? I thought she liked him. Well, there's a reason. Because there is some healing properties within saliva. And so in those days, saliva was one of the most common, commonly used things by Dr. Mom. So when he hears, and Jesus kind of rustling in the dirt a little bit, and the next thing he feels is something cool and weird on his eyes, He wouldn't have been quite as grossed out by that as we would have been. Now, Warren Wearsby suggests that there were a couple reasons why Jesus used clay and mud in the process of bringing the healing. Warren Wearsby suggests, first of all, that it was a matter of incarnation. If you go back to Genesis 1 and then read about the creation of man and woman, and then you go to Genesis 2 where it gives a few more specifics, God made man out of the dust of the ground, right? And so incarnation, God brought man out of the dust of the ground. And so it would stand to reason that Jesus uses the dust of the ground to create sight in a man who had never had sight. And so it's linking himself back to Genesis 1 as the creator. That makes sense, doesn't it? Wearsby suggests there was a second reason. It wasn't simply a matter of incarnation. It was also a matter of irritation. You've all experienced this. I have these kind of longer eyelashes. Once in a while, I'll have an eyelash make a U-turn. That is so annoying when I've got one little lash going boink, 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 boink. Kind of like the Three Stooges. I feel like I'm getting boinked in the eye by this thing. And so what do I do? I go to a sink. I run the water, and I'm trying to flush out this thing. You're out in a dust storm when a dust devil comes by. You get something in your eye, or maybe you're out there with the skill saw guys, and you're cutting some two-by-fours. You get some sawdust in your eye. What do you do? When you get that eye irritant, you want to go flush it out, right? And so it could have been a matter of irritation. Jesus wanted him to go to the pool of Siloam and wash. And the quickest way to get him there was to put something in his eye that would would irritate his eye. And all he wanted to do was flush it out. So Wearsby might be correct. Maybe it was a matter of incarnation, linking it back to Genesis 1, where God created eyesight out of the dust of the ground. And it could have been a matter of irritation. No way to know for sure, but I think that's a pretty good guess. Well, according to verse 7, the man obeyed the word of the Lord. He went and washed and came home seeing. For the first time in his life, he could see the dust on the ground. For the first time in his life, he could see the water in that pool he had just bathed in. For the first time in his life, he could see the walls of the temple 
that he had stood in front of and sat in front of day after day after day for so many years. He could see them for the first time. For the first time, he could see the blue sky and the white puffy clouds. And better still, for the first time in his life, he could see the faces of his friends and his family. For the first time in his life, he could actually see the face of his mother who had cared for him for so many years. What a glorious day. I wish I could have been there, don't you? I wish I could have been there. It was so astounding of a miracle that many of his neighbors thought it wasn't him. It couldn't be the blind guy. When they asked him how he got his sight back, all he could say was, well, the man they call Jesus made some mud, put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Salome and wash, so I went and washed, and then I could see. Well, his neighbors were blown away, and they asked him, well, where is this man? Where, where is this man, Jesus? And you've got to love the healed man's response. They ask him, where is Jesus? I don't know. Beats me. I haven't seen him. I, I, I wouldn't recognize him if I did see him. I don't know where he is. All I know is Jesus was there. I heard him speak. He put mud on my eyes. He told me to do this. I did it. And I'm healed. At this point, at this point, he probably wasn't a believer and follower of Jesus Christ. At this point, he probably wasn't saved. All he knew was that Jesus had healed him. He was blind, but now he could see. And we're going to see next week as we continue on in the chapter that he is going to come to a true salvation faith in Jesus Christ. It begins with a miracle, and it ends with his salvation, the greatest miracle of all. Let me share with you three life lessons that we can draw from this great passage. Jot these down on the back of your handout. Each of these is important. Life lesson number one, when someone is hurting, instead of looking backward for someone to blame, look forward to what God can do through you. Could you read this with me? When someone is hurting, instead of looking backward for someone to blame, Look forward to what God can do through you. Jesus' disciples asked the wrong question. They basically asked a backward-facing how question. How did this guy end up as a blind beggar? How did he get this way? The backward-facing how question isn't necessarily a bad question. Not a bad question, but Jesus reveals here that for those who are called to be the light of the world, that is him, And that is you and me as followers of Christ. For those of us called to be lights of the world, there's a much better question than that backward-facing how question. And that's the forward-looking why or who question. Who can make a difference in this man's life? Who can make a difference in this man's life? And the answer always is the same. Jesus Christ can through you. Through you. Think about the applications of this in your day-to-day life. When you see someone that's in front of you hurting, you have to believe that because you are a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, and Jesus said, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few, it is no accident that that hurting person is right in front of you. Right? It's no accident. Jesus doesn't have that many workers, and so if that hurting person is in front of you, it didn't just happen there By happenstance. If there is a hurting person in front of you, I want you to get into the habit of asking that that who question. Who can help this hurting person in front of me? And I want you to hear him consistently answer you in the same way. Who can help them? I can help them through you.
This goes for someone under your roof who's hurting, someone in your family, maybe a next-door neighbor, maybe a coworker, maybe someone in your school if you're a student. This even goes for that person standing in front of you at the Dollar Tree. Who's going to help this hurting person, God? And his answer, I'm going to help them through you. Jesus is specialty to help people. But for far too long, Christians have said, Jesus, help them. And then we turn around and go away and don't realize that Jesus was just about to answer that prayer through us. Don't make that mistake. Jesus wants to be their help through you. Life lesson number two. Hurting people need doctors, not detectives and philosophers, right? Read that with me. Hurting people need doctors, not detectives and philosophers. Sometimes we Christians are all talk, 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 and no action, right? Sometimes we do a whole lot of talky, talky, and very little helpy, helpy. It's true. We, we, we can complain all day long about whose fault it is that this, that, or the other happened. We can be very good at pointing fingers and playing the blame game. Uh, we can blame people for all sorts of things. Christians get together and we talk about whose fault it is that our nation is in a moral decline. Who's to blame for the rise in homelessness? Whose fault it is that there's so much violent crime in Victorville? Who's to blame for the litter in the Walmart parking lot? Man, that drives me crazy. And we can sit around and we can gripe and complain and point fingers. So you have to ask an important question. Are you going to sit around and play detective and philosopher, or are you going to roll up your sleeves and help fix some of those problems? Any of us can sit around all day and pontificate about whose fault it is and point fingers at whoever we think might be to blame. But we've got to roll it up and, and get it done, don't we? Roll up those sleeves and get to work. Think about it. If this blind beggar needed a philosopher, Jesus could have done that beautifully. If this blind man needed someone that was an excellent historian, someone who could point fingers, man, Jesus could have been his man. Why didn't Jesus play detective or play philosopher? Because it wouldn't have helped the man a bit. You realize Jesus is the creator of the universe, knew the inner workings of the eye better than anyone. Jesus basically had a Ph.D. in ophthalmology. Imagine they ask him the question, who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind? Well, let me uh, begin a a 12 part lecture series on the inner workings of the human eye. And, and, And that man on the side of the road, he could have listened to every word of Jesus during that 12 part lecture series. And he would have gotten to the end of it and it would have done him absolutely no good. Right. So notice Jesus doesn't give a history lesson. Well, let me tell you about the history of this young man in utero. And what transpired during the pregnancy that helped bring about the blindness? He doesn't give a history lesson. He doesn't play philosopher. He doesn't play Ph.D. in ophthalmology. He could have done any of those things, but it wouldn't have done that man any good. What does Jesus do? He talks very, very briefly and then gets to work, right? He gets to work. That man needed healing. So Jesus didn't do much talking. He started working. And Christ calls us to do the same. Get to work. Finally, life lesson number three. When God does something amazing in someone's life, it's not time for an interrogation. 
it's time for a celebration. Read that with me. When God does something amazing in someone's life, it's not time for an interrogation. It's time for a celebration. How sad that so many of the healed man's neighbors chose to be wet blankets when he had such wonderful news to share. They were wet blankets. Let's not make the same mistake. Sometimes we want to know all the details and we're just, you know, playing detective. We're interrogating the person that is just excited about Jesus. Sometimes someone accepted Jesus and their theology might be a little off. And so we're wanting to correct them and set them straight and do all that. There's time for that later. Sometimes we just need to celebrate with the person that God has just blessed and healed. Amen? Amen. Sometimes Christians in the church, we can be wet blankets. Sometimes we can be very good at interrogating and very poor at celebrating. So especially this Thanksgiving week, there are so many things to be grateful to God for. There's so many things to be thankful for. And the person next to you, their praises and thanks will probably be a little bit different than yours. Don't ignore them. Don't change the subject. Savor those thanks and praises. And you celebrate the goodness of God with them. Heads of families, let me give you a challenge. As you sit around the Thanksgiving table this week, most of you are probably doing that on Thursday. Because of crazy work schedules, some of you may be doing it tomorrow or on Wednesday or next Saturday. But whenever you sit around the table with family and friends to share a Thanksgiving meal, let me encourage you to have everyone go around the table and share some praises and thanks to God. And you celebrate the goodness of God and what he has done. Lord Jesus, thank you for your mercy on this man. Lord, it still seems a little strange to me that you hawked a loogie in the dirt to help bring about that healing. It still strikes me as a little gross, but I know there's a reason for everything you do. And so, Lord, that must have been the perfect thing to do in that instance. We thank you for doing that. Thank you, Lord, for not wasting the blind man's time with a history lesson or philosophizing. Thank you for not giving a 10 or 12 part lecture on ophthalmology. Thank you for keeping it short and sweet, declaring yourself once again to be light in the darkness and for having mercy and compassion on that man who needed it so badly. Help us to do the same. Help us to not be all talk and no action. Help us to speak and then act. Help us to speak and then share compassion. Lord, when people are in front of us who are hurting, please remind us to ask this question. Who can help this hurting person? And I pray that you would respond so clearly. I can. And I'm going to do it through you. Here we are, God. We want to be your hands and feet. Use us to minister to hurting people around us, especially as we enter this Thanksgiving week and move into the Christmas season, help us to use these hands and feet and mouthpieces for you. And I pray if there's anyone here who has never accepted you as Savior and Lord, that they would make that decision today. Say, Lord Jesus, please forgive me. Please take away my sin. I can't get rid of my own sin. I need your help. Please forgive me. Please wash me clean. Come into my life and give me a brand new start today. I'll put you in the driver's seat and I will follow you as my Lord from this point forward. I'll obey you 
in baptism. I'll obey you by obeying your commands. And I will serve you and tell others about you until you call me home to heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.